Hey everybody, I just want to take a moment to talk about a new thing I'm doing. Over the years, many of you have reached out to me telling me how much you love the podcast, but also wish there were more personalized takeaways and more in-depth interactions with our guests to hear what they think about comedy. This is why I'm now launching my new digital academy, Blueprint for Success. With exclusive interviews and comedy philosophies of stars and industry veterans, personalized versions of the Industry Standard podcast, commercial-free, and one-on-one coaching time with me. Blueprint for Success will give you the powerful tools that will take you up the elevator beyond the competition and reach the highest possible levels to achieve your dreams. Whether it be stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, hosting, radio podcasting, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or an agent. Now I'm here to help, personally. We'll go on an express train of comedy and entertainment like nobody else has before. You can find out more about Blueprint for Success and the comedy business on my website at barrycats.com. Together, we'll take your career where you want it to go. If you're going to be in entertainment, you may disagree with this, but I feel like you have to kind of be where the action is, at least if you're going to be in television. Um, That's starting to change a little, like there's now more hubs in other places, but especially in those days, you're either in New York or L.A., and it's still kind of true. L.A. is even more important than New York in terms of television production, especially in the kind of stuff I was wanted to do, which was studio-based uh, television. All right. Welcome back to Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. I am very excited today this is so exciting i this is a guy that i you know normally i don't really have too many people involved in the non-scripted reality space and i get a lot of requests for people in this space and i thought i wanted to reach out to this man mark cronin who i'm about to introduce to do this because this guy is the you talk about the American dream and you talk about starting in a certain place and working your way through this is what this guy has done I mean like these podcasts are all about the journey and I know a lot of people listen and I just want to say this perception isn't always reality everybody you meet in this business you might think that they're millionaires or that they're doing this or that or they're successful or they have that or whatever And at every point in their life, there's something that happened where it's not the way it is and it's not the way it actually seems. And, you know, I always think that way, like when I'm up here and I'm doing these podcasts and people come here and they think, oh, God, look at the space and whatever. It's nice, whatever. You know, I, I know what I go through personally. I know what I go through professionally. And I just I know the journey that I made and how far I still need to come and how much I want to do that I haven't done yet. And I always say that I sometimes I feel like an anorexic, you know, looking in the mirror and saying I'm fat because I think people think sometimes that I might be doing something when I'm really have so much farther to go. And I want you all to know that these podcasts are for you guys to see those journeys. And this guy's journey 
is quite amazing. Uh, Mark Cronin started as a comedy writer for Howard Stern. I believe only one of two comedy writers to start off with comedy with Howard Stern. And then from there, he started working on his bigger productions, his Channel 9 show. He was a part of the largest pay-per-view non-sports event in history, the New Year's Rotten Eve special. Uh, he also uh, segued from there into MTV, where he became a writer-producer on the show Singled Out and eventually went on to run the show and uh, during its highest-rated years with Jenny McCarthy and Chris Hardwick. He went on to create over 35 reality TV series, 22 of which went to multiple seasons, and several of which can be said to have been major hits for their respective networks. His best-known series include Beat the Geeks for Comedy Central, The Surreal Life for VH1, my Fair Brady for VH1, Flavor of Love also for VH1, as well as Rock of Love, Mind of a Man at GSN, and Below Deck at Bravo. In 2008, he sold a part of his company, 51 Minds, to the largest production company in history, Endemol, and throughout the last five years has sold bits and pieces until he's finally sold the final piece of his company to Endemol USA. Recently, he founded his own company called Little Wooden Boat Productions. Again, I'd love to know the second choice, which continues his quest for the most original, funniest, and biggest reality TV hits of all time. Please welcome my guest today, Mark Cronin. Thank you, Barry. All right. <laughs> welcome. Thank you. Wonderful to be here. I'm really enjoying it. Oh, well, yeah. uh, we haven't even done anything yet. I know. I just want to listen to you. I just want to sit here and <laughs> I just want you to keep going. I, I feel like if I get involved, it's not going to be as good. <laughs> Sadly, there's three producers in front of me that don't feel that way. <laughs> uh, what I love to do is I love to start at the beginning, if you don't mind. So this is like sort of a multi-part question, but take me back to wherever it was a month or a year before you ever had a thought in your mind of being in the entertainment business. Where were you? Where did you grow up? Was it tough? Were you like from a, there's a good family environment. Was it hard? Like how did it all come about? And what was the first entrance that you said, Hey, I want to do this. Well, I mean, it goes all the way back to when I was a kid, and I think my parents overly encouraged me to uh, stand in front of everybody and make a fool of myself. Uh, they used to love it when I would come down with my underwear on my head and pretend that I was a scuba diver. I hope you had uh, other underwear. No, yeah. <laughs> uh, they would encourage me to, you know, I, I think they were, I was just in a family that was um, all about letting me uh, perform a lot. And uh, so I always, you know, it comes from your family. And I, and I did not have a rough childhood. I, I grew up in the suburbs of Philadelphia. My parents were teachers. Um, they did instill in me, though, along with this encouragement for performance and comedy, they also instilled in me this kind of they were teachers, but they had kind of a blue collar mentality. They were actually, you know, union teachers and, and they, they had this idea that, you know, you went into the world and you made a living, you, you had to make money and you had to find a career that was going to be, um, you know, one where you, you're making a salary and maybe get benefits and these kinds of things. I can remember those kinds of things being important from an early age. And 
the dilemma for me was, as I was growing up and trying to figure out what to do with my life through high school and college, was that that never left me that need to go into something very stable, very, you know, something with a guarantee that you'll have a job. And, um, and so despite the fact that extracurricularly I would be in the plays at school or I would be part of the summer stage that uh, Tina Fey writes about or um, I did lots of stuff, but I never looked at it as a way to live your life. I always thought it was just a hobby and that what I really needed to do was be something um, with a salary. And so um, because I had <clears throat> I kind of had the ability to do it, I had a kind of a math science um, brain or a piece of my brain was a math science brain. Um, I went into engineering and I, um, I went to college for chemical engineering and I have a chemical engineering degree and I graduated as a chemical engineer and went into work as a uh, chemical engineer simply because I believe that that was a normal thing to do. And that if I tried to pursue any kind of acting or writing or songwriting or anything in the entertainment industry that I would starve. I felt that it was a it was a too scary a thing to step out into that world. Um, and I didn't believe it was a meritocracy. I felt that if you were good, you might not make it. Um, and so I felt like, I, why, why even get into that at all? And so even though in college I did both, you know, I was, I had my major as an engineer. I also spent a lot of time in a, a comedy troupe, an all-male comedy troupe at my school. I went to Penn in Philadelphia and we have this all-male group called Mask and Wig. It's kind of analogous to Harvard's Hasty Pudding Club. It's like an old, like founded in the 1800s, all male. So of course we had to wear dresses and stuff when we were playing females and we had to wear the dresses, Barry. It was, <laughs> it was important. Was that, uh, is that, is that legal that you can't have women in a club? Well, it's a private club inside the university. We don't take funding from the university. So we're able to continue as an all male, all male group. Did you ever get the, did, did the women ever protest or boycott the group? Yes. Uh, they went on to, uh, the women at the school at that time, this was in the eighties that I was there. They founded a, a, a counter group called bloomers that's still there. And so there's an all male comedy troupe and an all female comedy troupe at Penn. Um, and both have, you know, pretty storied alumni and, uh, are doing really well. And, uh, I think it's, I think it's great. I think it's okay. Who no, are some of the storied alumni? Uh, well, besides yourself, of course. <laughs> well, uh, Lou Schneider, who is a, a Lou is one of the greatest yeah, guys he, in the world. He ran a number of different television shows, also starred as an actor in a few of them. Uh, some of the shows he worked on, I believe he was an executive producer on Everybody Loves Raymond. Yeah. 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 Uh -huh. Yes. And he's he's still working now. He's doing the um, the Goldbergs on ABC. With Jeff and, Garland. Yeah. Fantastic writer. I mean, it was a group that. Um, was intense. You know, we would we would write our own original productions every year and put them on in a theater in Philadelphia, actually in downtown Philadelphia, that was open to the college, but it was also open to the general public. So people would come from all over the city to come see this comedy show that these college boys are putting on, and uh, we're proud of it. We we thought we were writing really good sketch comedy. Although I I go back and I look at some of those sketches. Uh, both uh, some video that I have and written, and I I I think we thought we were funnier than we. We may really have been, but but it was a great training ground for being a comedy writer or being just brave enough to pitch your ideas in a difficult room. Um, I learned a lot, um, but I honestly, the whole time, I didn't ever believe I was going to go that route. I thought as I watched 
the older kids graduate and go into the working world, I watch them move to New York and basically starve, um, you know, and, and live these horrible lives that you live right after college if you choose to go into the arts. <laughs> but don't let that deter you. Uh, it is rough at the start. It is rough uh, to make money in, at the start. And uh, I graduated as an engineer and I was making a big salary and I had a car and had a nice apartment in New York and I really thought I had it figured out. So you're in New York and just for our audience for the sake of you know, this is 25, 30 years ago. What were you making a year as a chemical engineer at the time? In 1986, I believe I was making like, I graduated to like $40,000 a year. Got it. But in today's, I think today chemical engineers graduate to like a hundred thousand a year or something, which is a great living for a 21 year old. Um, and so, and my friends who were you know, tried to go into the arts, they were taking very low paying PA jobs or even internships, not getting paid. And, you know, they were helping, you know, load the audience in at remote control at MTV or something. And I thought I was so much smarter than them. I thought I really had it all figured out until I realized that uh, when you go into the working world, your work becomes your world and the people you associate with are now all your colleagues and you, there is no such thing as an extracurricular life in real life. And so you get sucked into your profession. And if you don't like your profession, which I never really liked, I didn't like chemical engineering. I didn't even like chemical engineers. Uh, and when my world became all engineering, uh, it very quickly emptied of any joy. And I was watching my friends who I thought I was smarter than who weren't making as much money as me, but they were having a great time. They worked at MTV or Nickelodeon, or they were interning at, you know, they were a page at NBC and, and they were meeting cool people and they had music in their offices and, and toys in their cubicles. And it just looked like a whole different life to me. And I just became completely miserable with engineering. And I promised myself that I would just get the hell out. It took me a long time, though. I, I worked as an engineer for five years. You know, it's interesting. When I first went into your office, yours was the first office in the entertainment world that I ever went into that was filled with those kind of things. It was like it was the kind of place that was like you were you were walking into like the entertainment Disney world. It had all these little tchotchkes of the world frame things, different things that was yeah. fun. Yeah. So it's so interesting that that's what you wanted and that's what you ended exactly. up with. All right. Keep going. All right. So I decided I had to get out and um, I and by getting out, I mean, I needed to get out of a um, non-creative job. I wanted to be in a creative job. And to me, I didn't care what it was as long as it was a creative job. So I try, I took uh, some comedy writing lessons in New York. I tested to be a copywriter for J. Walter Thompson, the, the um, advertising company. I, uh, what did I do? I tried stand up. I, I tried everything. I tried every single thing I could think of that was a creative way to try and make money without quitting the job yet. Right. Without quitting the job. Cause I, that would be crazy. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, eventually what happened was a friend of mine from Penn, uh, Amy Friedman, who's now at Noggin, the channel Noggin, she's, she does the programming there. Um, she was one of these low paid, you know, producers for uh, Nick at Night. They had a news break spoof they were doing in between their shows. It was called Global Village News. And they were soliciting writers from outside to send in news jokes, you know, little fake news 
uh, news stories um, as jokes. And they were paying, I believe it was it was seventy five dollars for a half joke, whatever a half joke is. They would they would do each interruption newscast was two jokes or one big long joke. And if you wrote half the podcast, you get or the half of the newscast, you get seventy five dollars. And if you wrote the whole thing, you got one hundred and fifty dollars. So I would drive. She so she a friend of mine from Bloomers, by the way. Um, she uh, relationships everybody. Yeah, yeah. She was a friend, and and she uh, offered me the chance to write these jokes and fax them in. And they you'd fax in ten jokes, and they might buy one or two, maybe. And so every morning, as I was driving to work as an engineer, I had a little tape recorder with me. And while I was stuck in traffic on the Long Island Expressway, I would talk jokes into this uh, little tape recorder. And then as soon as I got to work, the first thing I would do is type them all up and send them to Amy. And then they started buying them. By fax. Yeah, by fax. <laughs> Not so old that it was the kind of fax with the phone that goes into the cradle, uh-huh. but, but but I would fax over these jokes. And so they started buying them. And, you know, at $75 and 150 a pop, eventually I was starting to make like, I don't know, $600 a week doing this. And it started to dawn on me that this was actually... I could actually make a living as a as a creative and I should work harder at trying to get out of engineering and so those first jokes that I sold started that re- the wheels really turning and I just went on an assault um the my attack in the New York area on trying to get into the entertainment business in my head I just wanted to do something I was a fan of would be my first choice and of course I was a fan of Saturday Night Live I was a fan of David Letterman um you know these are shows produced in New York, but there was a, there was a problem for me with those places because they were very Harvard centric. They would, uh, most of their writing staffs were Harvard writers. Um, and I felt, I guess it was an inferiority complex coming from the university of Pennsylvania. We've always had a, an inferiority complex over the other Ivy league schools. And so I felt, oh, those Harvard guys are never going to let in a pen kid. And I just kind of self-defeated myself on those. Um, not that I didn't try, not that I didn't try to find a way to send material to Saturday Night Live and see if I could get hired. But, um, there was this one show, this uh, show produced in Secaucus, New Jersey on WWOR that was completely underfunded, understaffed, you know, very low quality, you know, production value, uh, being produced by Howard Stern, the radio guy. And, And in those days he was really only a New York radio guy. Um, and I was a fan of his, I'd, you know, I loved his show. I listened to it every morning. I was addicted to Howard Stern. And so I knew his sensibility and his sensibility wasn't too far from my sensibility. And I, I targeted that show as the most likely place not to be hiring a Harvard writer. (laughs) And I targeted it as a place that I could probably get them to pick up the phone. Whereas if you call over to NBC, you're never going to get anywhere. But if you call over to WWR, they'll connect you to the executive producer of the show. So I just went on this assault. This, this, they had a, they had low defenses, I guess. And, uh, I just kind of started this, uh, campaign and I would fax them, uh, sketches written for their show. And I would go down, sometimes I'd even go down myself to the lobby and ask for the producer of the show. So I could hand him my sketches that were unsolicited. You know, I was just hoping they would like them, maybe use one. I would, didn't even want to get paid for it. All I wanted was give me a job. Let get offer me a job, a full time job, so I can quit this job I'm in now. And persistence, so much persistence. Yes, it took months. It really did. Hey, everybody! I hope you're enjoying this episode as much as I am. If you made it this far and you haven't fallen asleep yet, then you must be the type of person who's serious about having a career in the comedy business. 
That's why I'm offering you my Blueprint for Success, a one-of-a-kind all-access pass into my knowledge and experience after over 40 years of working with the best of the best in this crazy entertainment industry. I'll tell you all the stories, all the philosophies, give you all the great special guests, and even give you one-on-one -on -one private consultations to help you expand, enhance, and skyrocket your comedy career. Just go to barrycats.com and click on Blueprint for Success to learn more about my groundbreaking digital academy that I've created just for you. With it, we can take your career so far that one day, instead of listening to this podcast, you'll be interviewed on it. For yeah. those of you who don't know the beginnings of Howard Stern, you want to know how, if you want to know how to judge an artist by how powerful and how amazing and how extraordinary they are, Howard Stern was a New York radio guy. Maybe the range of his show at best was 150 miles or 100 miles of the epicenter of New York City. Yet he was getting guest shots on The Tonight Show, on Letterman. He was on national shows. They were having him on. Yet only a small percentage of the country could get him. That's how much of an impact this guy made as an artist. Yeah. No, he was, I mean, my respect for his power as an artist, his genius, uh, is kind of boundless. I'm, you know, I was a fan as a listener. And then when I got inside the organization over there, called loosely or an organization, um, when I saw how he would, you know, the thing, the things I learned from Howard, I learned a lot, but some of them are, first of all, um, the purity of vision that, uh, one guy's vision needs to be defended in, especially in comedy. I, I feel like, uh, uh, if you let, if you let the committees and the executives, you know, really call the shots, then you're not going to make something great. If you want to make something great, you really have to fight for your vision. And he taught me a lot about that. He also taught me that popular is good. That if you think that you're smarter than everybody else and that you're doing something that only a handful of people are going to understand because they're so much better than everybody else, you're probably going to fail. That uh, you want to make something that that makes a lot of people happy. Uh, we're in the mass entertainment business. And I, I believe that heartily. I believe that popular equals good in a lot of instances. Um, and that you're doing a good job if you're entertaining a big audience. And that Howard was highly driven by ratings. I mean, he, he would pour over the ratings of his radio show. Obviously, um, it was his measure of success. Am I, am I beating the other guys on the radio at the same time as me? And when he, he brought that to his television show where we would obsess over the ratings and we would look at the quarter hour, you know, did this sketch was not as popular as that sketch and why, and what are we doing? You know, how do we make more things that get high ratings and are we beating Saturday Night Live which we actually started to do in the New York area our show uh, the WWR show was on Saturday nights against Saturday Night Live and we would beat them and then when Howard went on in Philadelphia we started beating them in Philadelphia as well and so it really was it was it was how Howard was taking his gratification and I learned a lot from that and I think that my obsession for popular hit television shows comes from that. And a lot of times, uh, not to dwell on Howard, but he'd do things that were 
they were they 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 rendered his competition defenseless. He would do things <laughs> where no matter how creative you could possibly get to defend his assault, you couldn't figure out a way to defend it. Like when he came to LA here, he had a funeral for Mark and Brian. <laughs> He actually went through the whole thing, you know, I mean, just this whole elaborate thing, this whole planned funeral with speeches and all this thing. And if you're Mark and Brian or you're anybody, think to yourself right now as you're listening to this, how you defend that and how you come across with a fun radio show to come back in any way at that moment during that time and try to do something relevant that makes people say, wow, that's cool. You really deflected that. (laughs) It was impossible. Impossible. And that's what Howard used to do with the pay-per-view things, you know, but bongo fiesta, you know, that was one of his most popular things where literally he would play bongos on women's asses. Yes. Yes. You cannot defend anything. You cannot. There's no way. I don't care if you're a woman, if you're a man, you might not share that you watched it. It's like shopping at Kmart. You know you do, but you shop in fear. Uh, You know, it's uh, as Don Gavin used to say in Boston, he used to say it's the only place in the world where the mannequins have the coats over their heads. But the point being is that Howard was indefensible. And 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 that's he was why it was so incredibly successful. Incredibly brave. But how did you get the gig there? You fax, but producers don't want to see you win. They, they, you know, they're getting paid to write. They're getting paid to do things. They don't want to show somebody else that hey, this guy faxed something in for free. Here you go. The best joke you have today was free. I get paid money every day, but here you go. Like, how did you get the, them? The how did you navigate to get them in to, to be able to? Well, do here's that? here's what the politics of that show at that time were: that Howard was on the air in New York, in Manhattan, and his creative team was around him in Manhattan, and that was Jackie, the joke man, and Fred. And Robin, and that was the core. So Gary Delabate wasn't there. Well, he was there, but he wasn't. He wasn't normally considered one of the top creatives. I mean, I'm talking about the people who wrote the Howard Stern show, and they, that was the creative nucleus of that TV show was coming out of Manhattan, and they were basically dictating to the people in Secaucus what the show was going to be every week. What they was would, Fred's last name again? Fred Norris. He's still Fre- there. Fred Norris. It was uh, uh, Jackie, Jackie Martling. Yeah. Jackie, the joke man, Markling, and uh, and Howard were the writing staff. Those three guys were the writing staff with a little bit of help from Robin and Gary and some of the others, but mainly Howard and those two guys. And they would call up the Secaucus TV producers and tell them on a speakerphone, this is what we're doing this week. Start building the set. And, you know, this is what the sketches will be. We're going to write them over here in Manhattan and send them to you. And then, by the way, they'd write the sketches on with Sharpies on um, on uh, no, on copy paper because that's the way they do it in radio. They don't type things. They don't they don't need a script to follow. They just kind of loosey-goosey write things. That's um, what was so amazing about the television show. You have two writers starting this thing off. You're doing a full television show. You're handwriting it. <laughs> and you got a guy who's never done television yeah. in his life and it's beating Saturday Night Live. Yeah, yeah. Well, so here, so what happened was because I chose not to go in through the radio show, which was well defended. You know, they were in a, a well secured building on Madison Avenue, and it wasn't like you were ever going to get into for a meeting with Howard Stern. Um, it was almost as difficult 
then as it is today to get a meeting with Howard Stern. So because I was able to go in through Secaucus and the, the producers there were hungry for creative talent that could come in and start sending material the other direction. Their dream was, oh, if we just had some writers here in New Jersey who could write up some stuff that Howard likes, we could start contributing creatively to our own TV show. Because those producers weren't necessarily writing producers. They were execution producers. Dan Foreman came from the, the news division at WWR. Um, uh, John Lolas is actually the producer who hired me, the executive producer who they had brought in to beef up the creative power of the show. And so they had some money for writers and they hired uh, one kid, Mark Bergelis. Uh, they actually hired him before me. And that poor kid was getting tortured. He was just having a tough time pitching. He'd go into the meetings where... And the way Howard conducts his creative staff is everybody's involved. So a big conference room and you'd have Howard and Jackie and Fred and Robin. And then you'd also have Ralph, who at that time was just the guy who did Howard's hair. And you had, uh, you know, the, the celebrity booker and the PAs and everybody was in this room and everybody was meant to contribute creatively to the show. And this poor kid, Mark Berglis, used to get up and start pitching and the, you know, the locker room uh, mentality of that radio show would take over and Jackie would start throwing stuff at him and Fred would start imitating his voice. And next thing you know, everybody's laughing at him instead of listening to his pitch. And the kid didn't have like what I was fortunate enough to have was the, the, uh, the furnace of mask and wig at the university of Pennsylvania, where we were very nasty to each other. And we would, you know, if you tried to pitch something that wasn't good, you were going to get things thrown at you and you're going to get laughed at. And, and you just had to be brave. You had to just keep going and push through that. And so when I came in when they, I got into those meetings, Howard was so happy because I would just keep buffaloing through my pitches. Um, and I actually, you know, kind of stood up to the, to the locker room. And that's actually why I had quite a bit of success there at that show. Amazing. And, you know, uh, one of the things you mentioned, Jackie, the joke man, and we always talk a lot about what to do as an artist, what to do in your profession, whatever profession you're in to get to the next level. And Jackie, the joke man, uh, for those of you who don't know, he was a very, very uh, unique character in the comedy world a very different kind of character in the comedy world, a character in the comedy world that was hugely successful doing things that were not original, <laughs> which was very, very rare for any artist. Jackie, the joke man was a joke teller and we would tell a lot of jokes that were old jokes. Don't get me wrong. There's jokes that he would write of his own that he would perform, but the majority of his act was all old jokes that you heard from uncles and <laughs> brothers and in the locker room or wherever it was at the barber shop. And, but he was a huge draw. He was very successful and people would come to see him and they loved him. Another thing that Jackie did that every comic who's listening will agree is the number one thing that you cannot do when you're doing stand-up is he laughed at every single one of his jokes. Yep. Every time he told a joke, he, he would, would laugh at it. So here was a guy. He was older. He was older than the normal comic working around the time. He was doing old jokes one after the other. 
and he was laughing at his own jokes. Yet he probably was one of the most successful comedians in New York, headlining shows all over New York, making tons of money. Yeah. And Howard had him as his joke writer. One of his joke writers was Fred. You know, the way that would work, Barry, is that um, Howard... And this is another great thing about Howard's talent is he's able to take in a lot of information. I used to watch him on the set of the Channel 9 show and he'd be interviewing somebody and then taking information from his writers that they kind of send to him just across his desk, like little handwritten notes that he would then seamlessly incorporate into his interviews. And he does that on the radio that he'll have Jackie used to sit back there with his stack of copy paper and a Sharpie. And as Howard was interviewing somebody or talking on the phone to a caller or whatever it is, Jackie would be constantly writing thoughts, lines, questions, jokes for Howard and slipping them to him. And Howard would like read it decide he didn't like that particular one and just ignore it and keep going with his interview. And then another note would come in that he kind of liked the thought of, and then he'd work that joke into the interview. And you never knew at home that that was going on, that he was getting supplied a little bit by his writers. The only way you knew when Jackie was involved was he would always laugh at his own joke. If Howard used his joke, you would hear Jackie in the background go, yeah. Like that. And it was like his little cue to the world that I'm here and I wrote what Howard just said. And it was the funniest thing because he wouldn't do it. He would really not laugh at anything else. He would just sit there. And if he's if he's if Howard used a line that Jackie had written for him, he would go. Yeah. <laughs> and for all of you people uh, who are writers who have been in writers rooms across the world and sitcoms and sketch shows, you'll notice when there's a table read. You'll notice how hard the people laugh at their own jokes versus the jokes that you write, um, especially at places like Saturday Night Live or, or any sitcom you know. It's unbelievable. But the thing I wanted to say about Jackie was what not to do when you're an artist. And Howard is the most loyal guy in the world. Howard, you're his family. And... Jackie, uh, at times throughout his tenure, had renegotiated very hard um, to get more money, to get more of a better situation for himself financially. And the last time there was a renegotiation, Jackie pushed and pushed and pushed and in the end gave an ultimatum. He said, look, this is what I want or I'm, you know, it's over. I'm not going to, I'm not going to do this anymore. And the power of no is wonderful when you actually believe in your heart that you're okay leaving your engineering job. Right. But the power of no, when you're playing a, a game of poker against a guy who has given you your career and giving you your stage to be one of the most successful people out there. And when you start fucking with that person and you go too far, there's always a chance that no matter how loyal that person is, they're going to break. And Howard broke. And when Jackie gave the ultimatum and said, hey, listen, you know, it's either you give me this number that I want, which was hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars and equaled millions of dollars in the end of the contract that he wanted. 
and they were apart probably maybe a hundred thousand dollars a year a little bit more whatever it was inconsequential to the money that he was making when they went to Howard and said, Howard, what do you want to do? Because everybody would go to Howard. Doesn't matter what business affairs person it was, you're always going to go with the person at the top. Howard said, I believe, and I'm paraphrasing, he gave an ultimatum. He said, it's either that or the show. Okay, well, you guys, you know, make the decision you need to make and, uh, and I'll support it. And it wasn't the first time he had done that. That had been Jackie's negotiating technique at every contract negotiation he came down. There were several times he left the show prior to that in in the midst of negotiations trying to, you know, make the firm line that you're either going to pay me what I want or you may have to do the show without me. And Howard, in those earlier instances, was scared to do the show without Jackie. Um uh, he, he, I believe he said that on the air before that, that he was, you know, wasn't sure what the show was if Jackie left and was worried that, you know, it would be severely hurt by Jackie's exit. And so Jackie had that over Howard. He had the, he knew Howard was scared to change the show. Then they knew that Howard was very comfortable with Robin and Jackie and Fred, the way they had done it for so long. And Jackie used to call it the Beatles of, of radio and the four of them were so necessary. And, Howard, though, it hurt him every single time when these negotiations would get so acrimonious. And but he would always, you know, somehow behind the scenes, make it so that Jackie ended up happy. But Jackie pushed him probably one too many times. And this last one was, as you say, probably it almost seems silly how close it was to a done deal. And the fact that Jackie was still going to these extremes and Howard would say to him in all the past instances, please, this is the last time. Don't do this to me again. It was hurting Howard to be, you know, held a gun to his head like that. And eventually though, as you say, in that last one, Howard decided, all right, I guess I'll just see what the show is like without Jackie if I have to. And uh, he's realized since then, it's actually taught Howard. I believe that there is no, uh, there is no single person that, you know, he should be so scared not to be able to go on without um, that he has a, you know, his, I think a lot of people would say that, you know, when Artie joined the show, it, it, it had a whole new breath of life to it. And even since Artie has left the show, I think the show has now evolved into a, an amazing version of the Howard Stern show where he's doing these A-list interviews and they're in-depth and psychological and uh, revealing very, very, uh, you know, huge talents. Um, and so I think it's a whole new show now. And, and Howard has learned from the Jackie incident that he's, that Howard is enough that I can do this. I can do this and I can change the show if I need to, and it'll still be fantastic. Yeah. And there's two lessons here for you out there. Number one, if you're an artist in that chair, you have to know that no one is greater in the team than the common good of the team. And if somebody pushes you, whatever, you have to believe in yourself and know that you can do an incarnation of what you're doing that's just as strong, if not stronger. And there's different chapters of careers. There's different chapters of shows. Look, you know, when Cheers had the, the lead actress on the show, Shelley Long, uh -huh. you thought, wow, this is unbelievable. This chemistry, there's no way. Shelley Long said, you know what, I'm leaving the show. And Kirstie Alley came on and the show still survived and was great. Yeah. In MASH, McLean Stevenson was, it was the biggest show on television. He left the show 
And another person came in, and it was his big... Ten more years. Ten more years. <laughs> and where did McLean Stevenson go, and where did Shelley Long go, and where did Jackie the Joke Man Martling go? And the point being is that if you're an artist and you're in that position, don't say no and don't give an ultimatum unless you 100% in your mind know that that's what you want in your life for the next 10 years or whatever it is. It's also about partnerships and in your career, they will come and go that you will have people that you work closely with for a period of time. And for that period of time, you're in sync and you're producing great work. And sometimes those partnerships uh, split up like marriages and you should know that it's okay that if a part, if your partnership, the first person you're sitting down with to work as a team and bounce ideas off each other and writing treatments together or whatever you're doing, if someday one of you drops out or doesn't want to do it anymore, or you're disagreeing too much and it's time to split up, it's okay. You can go on. There'll be another partnership or you'll be fine alone or you'll be part of another team. Um, it's, it's about being kind of self-sufficient even in your partnerships. Thank you, Jerry Bruckheimer. <laughs> um, it's true. And so Jackie, after that happened, he tried to come back. He tried to get his job back. He did everything in his power to get back, but it was too little too late. Yeah. So let's move forward. You're working, you're making your mark with Howard Stern. And then what's your next step? Well, Howard was very good to me. And I, I joined that show in its last season and uh, he didn't want to continue it with the budget that they had. And the it was a difficult show and it, it uh, kind of tore at him, uh, you know, the amount of work he had to put into it. And uh, Channel 9 wasn't really supporting it with, you know, we were, we were up against Saturday Night Live who had 20 writers. And we had, uh, at that time, it was uh, Jackie, Fred, Howard, me and Al Rosenberg were the entire writing staff for that hour of comedy television on Saturday nights. And so... He felt he needed more support. He wanted a bigger budget, and they, they wouldn't do it. And so he said, all right, forget it. So he dropped the Channel 9 show, and all of a sudden I came up against that thing I had always been afraid of, which was that I had joined an industry where your job is uh, vaporous. And uh, I, instead of an engineer and leaving my 401k, I was now an unemployed uh writer for a show that is canceled. Uh, it was quite a shock to my system, actually. But uh, fortunately, John Lolas, the executive producer, uh, had other gigs, and he went on to produce a show for Dr. Ruth, and he hired me. And I started doing little gigs for the summer after the show ended, the Howard Stern show. And I was doing okay. Like I, But I always thought in my head, man, I may have to go back to engineering. I may have to. This might not work. Um, and Howard kind of helped me out, too. Like, he did Butt Bongo Fiesta right after the Channel 9 show, and I was a big part of that. R wrote many of the sketches for it and was started to become more of a producer, uh, you know, coaching the talent or, uh, you know, pre-talking to the celebrity guests or, you know, working with the art department to make sure the props were right. And that kind of stuff had happened at Channel 9, too, where we were so understaffed and underfunded that you kind of had to do everything. Everybody had to do everything. And... Uh, you know, talking to everybody out there who wants to be in entertainment, my a big recommendation I have is that you take any job you can get to get in there and then do every job in the place if you can. Uh, you know, offer every single department to help. Help the editors, help the help the art department, help the, the production management team. Just be extremely useful and you'll eventually become invaluable. It's like you're channeling Sarah right now. Is that right? <laughs> just do it. She's doing seven jobs probably right now. Seven. <laughs> seven just right now. 
Uh, but it's the best thing you can do because not only do you learn everything that everybody's doing, you you find your place, you find what it is you like doing or what you're most valuable doing, um, and you also become trusted. You, you, you the hardest thing in show business is to find people that you can trust that won't let you down when the chips are down. And uh, that's why, you know, they say you need to know somebody to get in. It's because trust is the hardest thing. Hiring somebody cold from the outside world that you can't trust, your, your reputation is kind of resting on your team. And if you bring people in that uh, are not trustworthy or aren't going to you know, work hard, uh, you can have a real problem. So anyway, if you get in, be a trustworthy, kick-ass, late-working and be willing to do every single thing that you're asked, and then all these other things that you weren't even asked to do. Try and help in any way you can. Anyway, that's what I did at Channel 9. Howard liked me. We did Butt Bongo Fiesta after that. Then I, um, uh, But then I moved to L.A., and um, the move to L.A. had to do with, A, my wife at the time uh, had just graduated uh, with an MBA, and she got recruited by a, uh, a firm out here in LA. And so it was either New York or LA. I knew it. If you're going to be in entertainment, I, you may disagree with this, but I feel like you have to kind of be where the action is, at least if you're going to be in television. Um, that's starting to change a little, like there's now more hubs in other places, but especially in those days, you're either in New York or LA and it's still kind of true. LA is even more important than New York in terms of television production, especially in the kind of stuff I was wanted to do, which was studio based uh, television. Um, and so LA was a great place to come to for me. Although when I first moved to LA, I was instantly unemployed. And I think I was unemployed for about a year. Um, and during that time, I uh, partnered up with a guy, Gary Auerbach, who's a producer in town here, and he was unemployed as well. And we used to get together every day and write stuff. We would work on a script that he was trying to make for a movie, or we would write treatments for a new TV show, some of them scripted shows, some of them you know, reality shows or game shows or whatever. We'd come up with ideas and we'd just try to be productive in spite of the fact that nobody was looking for us. <laughs> okay. So you're, you're here in LA. You're, I imagine living in a studio apartment. <laughs> you have little or no money for a year. How are you surviving for a year? Like, what do you do? Well, I was a kept husband. My, my wife as an MBA recruited by McKinsey and company was doing just fine. So we could afford, and it was fair because I had kind of worked hard while she was going to school. So we flipped. So she no longer in school is now making good money. And I was able to be unemployed without having to take God forbid an engineering job. So what's your first next, what's your first break here in LA? Uh, it's singled out. Uh, what happened there was Gary, my good friend and partner. He I'd met him working on the the uh, New Year's Eve special. He was hired to direct some of the sketches that I had written for that special, and we got to be good friends. We came out here around the same time and spent that year unemployed. But he had a good network. He had friends uh, at MTV in high places, uh, specifically Lisa Berger at of that course, time. Lisa Berger, and she hired Gary. She had just bought a game show called Skin Deep from a production company named uh, Wheeler Sussman. Um, yeah, I remember that. And Lisa Berger, for those of you who don't know, she now works at ABC, yeah. heading up the reality department yes. there. Yes, um, And uh, she's incredible. She's, she's great. Going. And she's been a patron saint of mine because the first person she hired was Gary. And she said, these game show producers, Wheeler Sussman, came in with this game show that she liked, but she wanted to MTV-ize it. 
Um, they needed to put an MTV stamp on it. And Gary was a producer that she had known from New York who had worked for MTV before. So she brought him in to help make this show into an MTV style game show. So Gary, Bert and Sharon of Wheeler Sussman uh, were the three executive producers. And Gary hired me as the head writer on the pilot. And so that's when Jenny McCarthy got hired and Chris Hardwick and uh, put them together. We used to do conference room run-throughs for the pilot, and then we shot a little pilot. Hey, everybody. Let me remind you one more time about my new blueprint for success. It's a project I've spent months and months working on just to help you jumpstart your comedy career and beat the competition. Whether you want to do stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, radio, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or agent, Blueprint for Success will give you all the tools you need to take your career to the highest levels. With exclusive interviews, my top 50 commercial-free episodes from Industry Standard, one-on-one -on -one coaching with me, and unprecedented access into my knowledge and experience from over 40 years in this crazy business. I guarantee you that with Blueprint for Success, you'll become the creator you've always dreamed of becoming. No one's asking me to do this. I want to do it because I want to help you become truly undeniable. So just go to barrycats.com, click on Blueprint for Success, and start your incredible journey today. I truly can't wait to work with you to help you change the trajectory of your comedy career forever. Uh, not meant so you hair. were in the casting process yeah. to find the, the woman and the guy. So tell me, was there anybody who came in in the casting process who became a household name, oh, but they came in and they auditioned oh, and yeah. you were like, oh my God, don't quit your day job. And they became, <laughs> they became fantastic. No, it was, well, in those days, uh, Ryan Seacrest was kind of a go-to host of pilots, game show pilots. And in fact, he's hosted pilots for me. Um, and uh, in those days, he was just, you know, making the rounds as a guy who was, you could count on to kind of get the rules right, speak clearly, you know, say something a little cute and he looked good. And uh, and I'm, I actually don't remember specifically him doing it, but I'm absolutely sure that Ryan Seacrest uh, auditioned for that hosting job because he was doing all of them in those days and uh, he's an amazing guy i remember i was at a finale of i was at a finale of american idol and it's the finale i mean it's like literally like 30 million people watch this show and i'm there like watching the rehearsal that's happening like i think three hours before the actual live taping and there's a guy on stage who I don't even recognize going through all of Ryan's stuff. I'm thinking to myself, where is Ryan Seacrest? <laughs> I mean, this is a guy, it's his show. He's thinking, like, this is the guy who gets paid, God knows, $35 million a year to do this thing. He's not even there. I take a stage manager aside. I said, how is this a live show? You don't even have the guy here. Oh, it's, it's Ryan. We don't worry about Ryan. I said, how can you not worry? You'll see. And so right before the show, like a half hour before the live show, I'm standing amongst these TVs and the teleprompter people off the side. And all of a sudden, I feel his presence next to me. He's uh, in a suit. He looks great. He's camera ready. And he talks to the teleprompter guy. He says, okay, let's from the top. 
And the guy just scrolls through and he's just looking at the screen. He's like, okay, next. Okay, next. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay, you don't have to go anymore. That's good. Thanks. And that was his rehearsal yeah. for the, the largest television show in history. The man's solid. He's very solid. Solid with teleprompters, solid with a live interview with somebody. He's a solid, smart guy. So So tell me what happened when Jenny McCarthy came in. What were you th- what were you thinking besides well, we all uh, loved is my her. marriage stable? It was <laughs> <laughs> the the problem for us about Jenny McCarthy was that she was the reigning playmate of the year. And at MTV, that was not a uh, respected credential. And they were terrified of hiring the uh, playmate. Just somebody who posed naked was hard for them to understand. Well, they hired you. (laughs) Yeah. My nude photos have have been squashed. (laughs) The most difficult thing that people don't realize when you're doing these auditions, these host auditions is teleprompter and for those of you who don't know what a teleprompter is or how it works what happens is you have a very large camera like those cameras that you've seen on television series or whatever in the behind the scenes that are like they're on like a like almost like a round dolly with wheels and they weigh like literally hundreds of pounds and the way the teleprompter works is somebody's typing in the copy of whatever there is to say and it's showing up right in the camera that you're looking into. And unbelievably, when you're doing it, you can't believe that the audience can't see the words, but you can see the words and it's scrolling yeah. up. But it's, it's like a one way mirror. But it's it, like a, you can see through the backside of it, but you, you can see the words. But even though it seems like it would be simple to read the copy of what you're doing, off of a piece of paper that's just literally being beamed into the face of the camera that you're looking into, it's a different muscle. And there's people that are amazing that just can't do it. And there's people who have no experience at all that can just walk right in and do it. Yeah. And normally there's very little training that people offer for it. Right. You and so here, to... you, here you have a woman who's a playmate of the year <laughs> who's never hosted anything and never done teleprompter before. And so what happened when she auditioned? Well, she's a natural talent. I mean, she has a natural... First of all, she's extremely likable. She's down to earth. She's, you know, a much, very smart woman. Um, and so she had a lot going for her. I mean, she was charming and beautiful and funny and kind of dudish. Like, she would burp and slap guys on the shoulder. And she was fun. She was a fun, fun person to have around. She's somebody you'd want to invite over all the time. And that's... That's perfect in a host. A host that you want, that you would actually like to hang out with, that's the best kind of host. So when you guys saw her, it was automatic. She was the number one choice by far, or did you test a bunch of people? We tested a bunch of people. There were other choices that would have gotten the job if MTV had ultimately decided they were too scared to hire the playmate. But uh, uh, we lobbied hard for her. Uh, Gary and Bert and Sharon lobbied hard. Lisa went to bat for her, knew she was the right one. Lisa Berger knew that Jenny was the best of them all and uh, convinced the brass at Viacom that it was going to be okay. Van Toffler. We were all going to, we're going to be all right. We're going to, you know, hiring a playmate is just going to be fine. And it was, it was not an issue for MTV. It was not a negative because Jenny spoke so well for herself and was so obviously more than, um, you know, hired for her bod uh, that I think that that's how it, it's just because Jenny was so good, I think. 
Yeah, I, you were dressing her in all those turtlenecks during the show. Of course. <laughs> my uh, my big thing was her navel. I was like, you know, her navel's got to be worth a lot of ratings, and so I would always, I'd always be like, it's always got to show. It was, I was, it was like a rule. <laughs> and what about Chris Hardwick? How did he get hired? How did that all work? Well, out? he was already he had just done a show for MTV called Trashed uh, that hadn't survived, but he was already like this floppy haired, cute, funny, energetic, very smart guy. Um, and he was actually an easy hire. Like he was he just did a great job. Uh, with the show right away was already an MTV face. And so it was kind of a smooth road for him to move into that show. So then your next step after MTV and the success of that show, which you ended up running the last two seasons or right. Didn't you end up executive producing? Yeah. What happened was poor Bert, Sharon and Gary didn't like working together or whatever, for whatever reason, all three of them left at once and it left nobody running the show. And so I was the head writer and Lisa was, uh, again, my, uh, one of my patron saints in my, in my career, Howard being one, Lisa, I would say is another, uh, had the faith in me to say, okay, well, because as a head writer, again, I was doing much more than writing. I, I, I ran the writing staff for all the silly little questions and the copy that the hosts were saying, but I was also in charge of the art department and I was in charge of the prize department and I was in charge of, I, I kind of took over department by department because I was a good manager, because I had a, I was organized, I worked very hard. Um, and so I just found reasons why I would just keep taking over these departments. So by the time the producers left, I was already kind of running a, a chunk of the show anyway. Um, and they, uh, put me in as the showrunner, along with a woman, uh, Nancy McDonald, who was an MTV uh, producer. And she and I ran that show for three seasons. Um, and then we left when Jenny left. And uh, then the show went on for a couple seasons after that with Carmen Electra. But I was not uh, part of that incarnation of the show. So then you move to the Fox network. How does that happen? Well, again, Lisa, Lisa Berger, patron saint, Lisa Berger. Relationships, everybody. <laughs> yes. Um, and, you know, it's trust, too. It's like she knew I was somebody that worked hard and somebody that, you know, she could trust. And and, um, and also Gary, Gary Auerbach, uh, my friend that I had been unemployed with for so long. And so Lisa left MTV. Uh, Brian Graydon had come in and was reorganizing the channel to, you know, bring in his people basically. So Lisa left MTV at that time and she moved to Fox television studio. She got a job, uh, with a small studio inside of Fox that was tasked with making cable, uh, television. And so she took over there as their head of, um, uh, development and she had the power to make what they called pod deals in those days. Uh, we used to, I've had many of them. Yeah, it stands for puny overall deal. <laughs> uh, but the first pod deal that she gave out was to Gary and I, because we had formed a little company called Mindless Entertainment, and she took a risk and hired us on a three-year contract to come in and yeah, basically gave us a salary and a budget that we could spend to try and develop shows and make tapes and option properties. She gave us office space. We had an assistant. It was beautiful. That it was, was, a, that beautiful. was in, And that was in the late 90s. Yes. And she set us up. So I went from singled out to big deal. Got it. And it was Gary again. Gary and I were the showrunners for that show. Uh, that show was produced by Stone Stanley Productions in those days. And, but where was that show? It was on Fox. It was on After Football so on Sunday nights. Okay, so you had the relationship with Fox, and then Lisa came in, yeah. and then it's just both things came together. Yeah. Okay. 
Hey, everybody. Thanks for listening to the podcast. I want to talk to you about an amazing documentary that I worked on a few years back called I Killed JFK, which was unlike anything I ever did in my life. It centered on a man who'd been in prison for 30 years, who's the only person in history to have admitted to killing Kennedy, and his story is unbelievable. He started as a runner for the mob. He was hired to drive two hitmen from that city around Dallas, and he ended up being the guy who calibrated their weapons. And he was there that day with one of his own and took the fatal shot that killed John F. Kennedy on the grassy knoll. His story, the footage, the interviews, never been seen before. You can't find them anywhere else except on this documentary. So go to barrycats.com to the merch page and buy the documentary with the rare interviews of the five greatest historical experts in the world. So just go to barrycats.com, the merch page, pick up the documentary and interviews, and I guarantee it will reverse the way you feel about what happened that day in 1963 and change your opinion of the government and how it works and alter the way you think about things forever. Lastly, I want to talk to you about something really impactful and it involves something really close to my heart, self-education. You see, throughout my life, I realized that every success I've ever achieved in my career has come from the education I received from my experiences in the business. And I truly believe that we all have the knowledge inside of us that others would kill for. And by sharing that, we can open up an entirely new world of possibilities for ourselves. That's why I'm so excited to tell you that I've partnered up with my friend Tony Robbins, who's been number one in this field for 40 years. Along with his team of experts, Dean Graziosi and Russell Brunson, they'll show you how to take that valuable knowledge in your mind and turn it into an incredibly profitable mastermind workshop or event, just like they have and continue to do in their careers. And they're launching a new training program that's literally changing people's lives by helping people like you be a part of this $129 billion a year business. So it's an incredible opportunity for someone like yourself to build your own business, share your knowledge, and help and serve people in a huge way with the guidance of Tony Robbins the best in the business. He's actually going to teach people like you how to make big money and build a successful business. So if you're ready to take your life to the next level, they're doing a free live training session. BarryKBB.com. That's B-A-R-R-Y-K-B-B.com. Look, I've done over 440 free podcast episodes of Industry Standard. And because of your incredible response, it's reinforced my belief that we're morally obligated to share and pass on our knowledge with the world and help other people in those ways. I truly believe this. And I really love this groundbreaking training program and how it can turn your knowledge into an extraordinary amount of money. So just go to barrykbb.com, that's B-A-R-R-Y-K-B-B.com, to this free training session with the best in the business, Tony Robbins. I guarantee you, it will change your life forever. As always, this has been Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. And if you like the show, tell all your friends. And if you don't like the show, tell all your friends. You get out the money Drop that fancy 
call All the people love you Cause you're going far Life is for the dreamers They have all to gain It's never quite over Till it all feels the same You pick your own poison Dig your own grave Down in the valley A fortune Thank you for listening to Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of new episodes or how to reach Barry through Twitter, Facebook, or email, go to BarryKatz.com. Before you leave, please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast, leave a comment, and rate it, even if you think it blows. Thank you for your support, and have a great day.